It's Monday, July 9th, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, this is our weekly Monday Bible study and call to prayer. Today, we are finishing our study on the gospel according to Luke, and we are joined by Dr. Rick, our Vice President of Engagement. Dr. Rick will walk us through Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. And then also make sure to grab a copy this week of John Stott's Basic Christianity as our weekly Bible study will be focusing on this great work in the following weeks and months. Hi, this is Rick Morton, and thanks again for joining us today on the Defender Podcast. Um, We're finishing up the book of Luke. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. This is our final study, and after almost a, a year in the book of Luke, and uh, excited to to break down this uh, this last portion of what's been a, what's been an incredible book to journey through. Um, and so today we're going to be talking a little bit about proofs of the resurrection um, in uh, in this last section of. Uh, of Luke, Jesus is appearing to the disciples and they're trying to get their minds around um, what it means that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so um, Tim Keller writes about the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any, any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so today we can say authoritatively um, that based upon the, the word of God that Jesus did rise from the dead, um, that there is, there's proof within even the text of Luke chapter 24, um, and that that provides authority for our lives um, in, uh, in, in many different ways. And so we're going we're gonna to jump in and start breaking down the text a little bit. Um, it says, as they were talking about these things, and this is, this is both the, uh, the disciples that were in Jerusalem. So this is uh, Peter and, uh, and, and John and the rest, of, uh, the rest of the disciples that were in Jerusalem, presumably the women who first found the empty tomb. Um, and then also uh, it includes um, Cleopas, and, uh, and, and the other disciple that's not named who Luke told us about earlier in um, chapter 24 who m- met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And so um, as far as time, place, and setting, what we, what we kind of know has happened at this point is that um, Cleopas and the other disciple had walked um, the seven miles away from Jerusalem um, headed toward Emmaus, and they encountered Jesus, and Jesus opened their eyes, and they realized it was Jesus, and that He had risen from the dead, and so they hurried back through the night um, to to find the rest of the disciples. Um, John also conserves a detail for us here. He says in in John chapter twenty, John lets us know that the room that they came back to in Jerusalem, that the door was locked, um, and it and it talks about in John chapter twenty that the disciples were hiding um, out of fear. Uh, of the Jews, and so at this point they weren't they weren't hiding because they were scared of God. They weren't scared of the implications of um, even maybe of, of Jesus' death as much as they were they were hiding and concerned about um, about what the Jews might do to them as followers of Jesus in the wake of uh, in the wake of Jesus' death. 
And so, um, so then in the middle of this room, while they're all sorting out and trying to figure out what does this mean? What does it mean that, that Cleopas and the other disciples saw Jesus? What does it mean that, um, that, that Paul had seen Jesus? What does it mean that the women had encountered the empty tomb and that they had seen Jesus? What, is, what does all this mean? And, and as they were discussing, verse 36 tells us, it says, it says they were talking about these things. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. Um, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. In other words, they didn't really wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus really was alive and what this meant. And so they're cowering in, in a locked room, and Jesus enters the locked room um, without benefit of a door. And he's standing right among them, and they were, they were shocked. They were freaked out, as, as I'm sure we would be. But, um, but what this shows us is, is, is that it, it, it shows us the, um, the nature of what they didn't understand, but the, 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 the powerful, um, world-altering, life-altering implications of the resurrection. And, it says to, he, and he said to them, verse 38, Why are you troubled, and why, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet, that, that, is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And, and so they were, they were afraid at this point that Jesus was, um, was only a spirit, that he didn't really rise from the dead in body. And Jesus is saying to them, no, this is important. Touch me, touch my hands, touch my feet. See that this is really me. I really have flesh and bones. Now, the, the thing is that um, you know, their, their immediate reaction was to doubt that this was a bodily resurrection. The truth is that same doubt is going on today. Um, read an excerpt from an, from an article called Matter, does matter matter reflections on the bodily resurrection of jesus by brandon ambrosino from a few years ago in the huffington post and brandon writes um, regardless of what actually happened to jesus body on easter morning the important point of the resurrection story is that god is the one who renews all things and he says in this article, as I walked to the A train, I started thinking about my priest's closing statement to his homily, which was titled A Different Way of Looking at the Resurrection. His message invited us to think about the resurrection stories as metaphors about enlightenment. The risen Jesus is a bit of a stretch, I thought to myself. The Easter story is much less embarrassing if we can focus only on its metaphorical significance. I try to put aside the issue of the resurrection as history, choosing instead to think about the resurrection as meaning. In other words, the point of the resurrection story um, is the point of the resurrection story the actual resurrection or the meaning of resurrection. As I ducked into the subway, I decided it would be best if I left behind such, such a childish interpretation of Easter stories and focused more on the metaphorical spirit in which they were intended. Whether or not Jesus actually walked out of his tomb, I would live my life within a resurrection ethos. Here's the problem with that. Jesus doesn't want us to live within a resurrection ethos. He doesn't want us to, to live based on a fairy tale. Jesus is, is, is demonstrating to his disciples in this moment, he wants us to live upon a resurrection, a physical resurrection and its implications. And so Jesus is showing them that he really did rise from the dead. Touch me, feel me, see me, um, you know, interact with me in a way that you know that I, that I really do have power over death, hell, and the grave. Why is that important? 
Well, eight reasons that that, um, that that I would point you to about why the bodily resurrection, why we have to believe the bodily resurrection is true. The first is that the bodily resurrection affirms and proves Jesus' divine nature. It, it, it shows us that Jesus is God. Um, if Jesus had remained dead, if Jesus had remained half dead, if Jesus had remained um, dead in body but, but alive in spirit, then he really couldn't be God. His bodily resurrection proves that he's more than a man. It proves that he's the God man and, and, it, and it proves that, that, he, that he holds the power that he says he holds over death, hell, and the grave. Um, the bodily resurrection serves as a, as a basis for the Christian faith. Number two, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Um, in other words, the, the whole basis on, on which the Christian faith rests, um, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that was completed um, in his resurrection, in his defeat of death, and the fact that he's alive today. The bodily resurrection, number three, um, it, it means if it's untrue, then, then Everybody who's ever shared the gospel is a fraud and a liar. And, and so how can we trust them about anything? It says, Paul wrote it that if the resurrection didn't take place, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, it, it is true that the dead, dead are raised, and we are telling the truth, and the gospel is true. The gospel aren't just good words or wisdom sayings for life. The gospel is life, and, and it's, it's bound up in the fact that God defeated um, sin and death at the cross in the person of Jesus, and that person got out of the grave to finish the task. Um, number four, the, the bodily resurrection antici anticipates a future resurrection for us and for all believers. First uh, Corinthians fifteen sixteen for the dead are, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, um, and and so this this really serves to give us our hope. Um, number five, without the bodily resurrection, we're all still dead in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also are those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, um, that, that we, are, we are dead in our sins. We have no better answer than before Jesus came if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Number six, Jesus' is the Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20 uses that terminology. First fruits mean that, that this is the beginning of a harvest, but there's more of a harvest to come. Jesus' resurrection is the, is the first harvest, the, the, the resurrection of all from the dead, and the, the creating of a new heaven and a new earth like in, like we see in second peter 3:13 or revelation 21 is is the ultimate destination jesus is going to come back he's going to establish a kingdom um, he is going to reign over a new heaven and a new earth we have that promise in the second coming and that in the second coming he will resurrect those who are uh, who have faith in him Number seven, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead fulfilled his own prophecies. In, in other words, Jesus, um, in places like um, John two, um, chapter nineteen or verse nineteen through twenty one, Jesus said, I, "I." Jesus answered them, "Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Then the Jews said, "It has taken forty six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days." 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. This is the, this is the ultimate mighty Casey shot, pointing over the fence and telling people what he was going to do. Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, and he did. And it proves that Jesus can be authoritative with his word because he's sovereign. Um, and then finally, um, if, if the bodily resurrection didn't take place, there are many, many Christians who've, who've been persecuted and even died for a lie. Um, and, and what we know is from Romans 10, um, chapter 11, that those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. And, and so those who have died um, in, in pursuit of the faith and in representation of Jesus, they have died well. Um, they've not died as, as a result of a lie. Now, if we turn back to the story, what we see is that, um, that Jesus appeared in their midst and they still really didn't know um, what, what to do. And so in verse 41, it says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And, and so this phrase, disbelieve for joy, this was like they, they couldn't believe their eyes. They, they were excited and joyful about what they were seeing, but they couldn't really put it all together. They couldn't really um, get their arms around it, and they were still processing it. But Jesus drove home the point, and he drove home the point and showed them that he was real by telling them to give him something to eat. Practically, Jesus hadn't eaten for more than three days. Um, he had, he'd been in the grave, and then he'd been on the road to Emmaus, and, and Jesus was in need of real food because he was a real person with real physical needs. And so once again, we see that this is a story not about a spirit, not about a hologram, not about any, anything that we could conjure up. This is a story about a real person who was really alive, who really needed to eat. And so um, he goes on to tell them, um, after, after we see that, that, um, that he, he ate before them. And then it says in verse 44, um, he talks about his words. He says in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while, still, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus at this point is explaining um, the gospel in terms of the resurrection. He's explaining the entire story of the gospel, not just his birth and life and death and resurrection, but he's expl explaining the good news from the very beginning of the scriptures all the way through and that Jesus is ultimately the apex and the hero of the story. And so it's all good news because of what Jesus has done. If you want a great example of a way to weave all of the scriptures together in context of the gospel, look at Acts chapter 7. Um, Stephen and his sermon is a wonderful summary of how the Old Testament points to Jesus and to God's redemptive plan. Um, now, there's been a whole lot of talk recently um, by in some circles about this idea of unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament. And I, I just want to tell you that um, we have to realize that that all of the Bible, regardless of, of its if, if it's teaching about Jesus or not, that all of the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Um, and, and we don't want to be on this same trajectory. Um, we don't want to. We don't want to merely reduce um, follow our following of Jesus to trying to, to reduce down to following him like a rabbi in the rabbinic tradition and ignoring all of the narrative that was building in the Old Testament that was pointing toward the gospel. Um, Rob Bell, back in, in his book, Velvet Elvis, said some you know, things at the time which were somewhat controversial, which we've come to know has, has really um, kind of uh, parted him from the Orthodox faith. Um, and, and, but, but the very seed in the beginning of that is, is not believing that all of the scriptures are inspired and infallible and ultimately that all of the scriptures are not, um, are not pointing toward the fulfillment 
um, from Jesus. And so who are we to take bricks out of the wall in the story that God has given us? Um, and there's, there's, and we're not going to do that. We're going to trust that the same Jesus who could rise from the dead in body is the same Jesus that can protect and give us a word um, that he would want for us to have and to depend on. So we turn our attention down to verse 46 now. Um, once he had opened their mind to the scriptures, he said to them, Thus it is written, the, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the Great Commission restated it, uh, merely in a different way. That, that, that everything uh, that Christ has, has done, has completed, um, the opportunity, the purchase of salvation, and now people need to be told about it, and they need to be told about it in a progression. And so you're going to tell them first in Jerusalem, then you're going to tell them away from Jerusalem, and then you're going to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're a part of that continuing story. We're a part of that continuing effort. Um, but we're not a part of that continuing effort on our own. Verse 48 says, um, you are my witnesses of these things. In other words, go and tell the story of the gospel that you've heard. Go and tell the truth of the gospel to the world. Um, and he says to them, he says, and behold, in verse 49, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so the reminder to us today is that we have the Holy Spirit to empower our evangelism, that we have, we have the Holy Spirit to empower us as we go to tell the world about Jesus. And so we don't go alone. Um, we have a great story to tell, but we also have a great God who inhabits and empowers that story. And, and he wants us to go in his power. And, and so we, we need to remember that we need to, we need to pray and, and we need to strain to, to walk in the presence of the Lord and to, and to walk in the fullness of relationship with the Lord as we, tend, as we seek to walk the gospel out um, to the nations. Now, as we finish the last couple of verses of, of Luke and close um, this book, um, in verse 50, he said, it says that then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so, so we have this great scene that Jesus leads them out as far as Bethany. Now we know that Bethany, Bethany has a significance because of a story that happened earlier in the gospels and that's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus takes them literally to this place that in their mind represents his power. It, in their minds, it represents resurrection. In their mind, it represents hope. And he takes them to this place and he leaves them that the last um, lingering view that they have of Jesus happens in this moment where he first showed them his power over death and hell and the grave. We have a tendency in the Christian world to name things Bethany. Bethany Church, Bethany for the name of ministry. Sometimes we name daughters Bethany. Like, why do we name things Bethany? Why do we name people Bethany? We don't name them Bethany because of what the word means. Because the word actually means, it either means place of dates, you know, like figs, dates, like eating dates, or place of affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not excited about naming my daughter place of affliction. Why would I name my daughter Bethany? I, I would name my daughter Bethany as a remembrance and, 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 to, and to pay honor to the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and that we have hope. And so Bethany, um, it was a reminder to them and it's a reminder to us that we have ultimate hope because Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus conquered death, that Jesus paid the penalty for sins, and that Jesus is alive today. 
And so it says in that moment that that he that he ascended to 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 the to the Father, um, and that he left them, and that in verse fifty. Um, in, in verse 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem. But they didn't return to Jerusalem and lock themselves behind a door. It says they returned to Jerusalem with joy and were continually in the temple blessing God and ultimately waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit that was to come. They didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't know what, what Jesus was going to do, but they knew that Jesus was going to do something and they knew that that promise could be kept and would be true because Jesus had risen from the dead. And and so let us today be the men and women who, who look at this story and remember that we have great hope and that we serve a God who, who has great power. And that in our task to, um, to push back darkness, to, to share the light of the world, Jesus, to the ends of the earth, in the hard places, with vulnerable children and vulnerable families, and in all the ways that we serve, that we serve a God who has the power to rise from the dead. We serve a God who stands sovereign over the universe. We serve a God whom we can put our hope in because of what he has done, and that Jesus helped us to understand that he didn't rise merely as an idea that he didn't rise merely as a spirit, but he rose in, in bodily form. He rose in, in his earthly body to show us once and for all, beyond a shadow of a doubt, his power over everything in the created world that we know. Well, thanks, Dr. Rick. This week, we are praying for the country of Hong Kong. We are praying that the gospel will continue to spread in Hong Kong and that more and more people will be saved through this glorious gospel. We're praying for the gospel to reach even into the government of Hong Kong and that leaders will become followers of Christ. We're praying for the government as they make decisions and, and lead the country of Hong Kong. We're praying specifically for waiting children, Tammy, who is aging out in December, Ellie, who is a seven-year-old little girl. And we are, are just praising the Lord that there is a Lifeline family currently pursuing Amos, one of the waiting children. And, and we are praying as well this week for families in process, for our staff to be equipped to lead these families well, and that God would provide for each of these families needs who are in process. We're praying that the Lord would, would bring more families who are mission-minded, and especially who have a heart for older children and children with significant special needs. We are praying that the Lord would protect all the waiting children as they wait and put people in their lives that will love them and share Christ with them. We're praying for the increased interest of the program over the summer as two new families have signed up and we're just praising the Lord for special families who faithfully pursued this program through the long process and, and we are praising them for their steadfastness in seeking what the Lord has called them to do and we're just praying and praising the Lord, that, that Hong Kong will continue to be an adoption-friendly culture where children with minor and correctable special needs are able to be adopted domestically. We're just praising the Lord that people in Hong Kong are adopting children and pray that that trend will continue. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you uh, are over Hong Kong, that you are God that who is present, that omnipresent over the events and the happenings in Hong Kong. We pray that you would work in the hearts and the lives of the people, that they would continue to seek out adoption domestically, to love on kids who need homes, love on kids who need a family. Lord, we pray that the church would be strengthened in Hong Kong to, to rise up and to show the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. Lord, we pray that the gospel would penetrate the 
this island and that it would be known from, from Hong Kong Island all the way into Pyong Island and all throughout the harbor and the South Asian Sea that your glory, your gospel would be made known. And as your gospel is made known, that more and more people would join the cause of gospel-driven justice for the poor, the needy, the orphan, and the widow. Lord, you are the God of Hong Kong and we thank you. And we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that for your glory and for your gospel. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel to you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again tomorrow for the Defender Podcast.